Hello and welcome and, um, to this first public lecture of this uh, academic year, a uh, public lecture uh, put on by the Department of Media and Communications, and I'm very pleased to see so many people here. Uh, my name is Sonia Livingstone. I'm a professor in the department, uh, and I'm chairing this evening's talk. Can I just check that you can hear me in the back? Yeah, okay. I thought I'll do that rather than ask our speaker to do the, the sound check. The format of the evening um, is that I'll introduce our speaker, um, who will talk for around about 50 minutes, and then there will be time for questions, so um, please be uh, getting your questions at the ready. Um, and then before everyone rushes off, I'd like to um, say that there's going to be a reception in the senior dining room, uh, to which everyone is very welcome. And that will be, uh, that's on the fifth floor of the main building of the LSE, which is pretty much at the entrance opposite this building. So um, there will be um, a drink. So I'm very pleased um, to welcome for this uh, uh, lecture uh, speaker for today, Professor James Curran. Uh, Professor Curran is director of the Goldsmiths Media Research Programme. He's professor of communications at Goldsmiths University of London. And he has written or edited 18 books in media and communication addressing issues in political economy, media history, media theory. Uh, I think many people here are familiar with many of those books. Some of them, us have them in many editions as a new edition comes out. Um, they include notably Power Without Responsibility, Media and Power, Mass Media and Society, Culture Wars, Dewesternizing Media Studies, Contesting Media Power, Media and Cultural Theory, and more. I shan't read them all. Um, through his very impressive career, um, Professor Curran has explored the ways in which media organisations have evolved over time. He's explored the uh, market and economic structures that have shaped media output, and he's examined the ways in which the media relate to and um, influence social processes in society. Um, he has a very exciting if, uh, and ambitious topic for today. Uh, he's going to talk on the title Global Media Systems, Public Knowledge and Democracy, and I would ask you to welcome him. Can I just check that you can hear me at the back? I might say Sonia is a friend of mine, which is why there was such a friendly introduction. <laughs> Any survey of the media around the world could look at different things. It could draw attention to the emergence of a propaganda war between Islam and the West, or it could look at the cumulative trend towards less government control of the media, or it could explore how the internet, mobile phones and new developments such as metadata systems are restructuring communications around the world. Or it could survey yet again the debate about whether globalisation is promoting cultural uniformity or heterogeneity. This last, as you know, has tended to monopolise the attention of the field with one increasingly beleaguered set of scholars arguing that media globalisation is fostering cultural imperialism, by which they mean 
the promotion of consumerism, individualism, American-style infotainment, and unequal flows of communication between developed and developing countries. Another tradition seeks to rebut these charges by pointing to the media self-sufficiency of populist nations like India and China, the rise of indigenous centres of media production from Taiwan to Brazil, the so-called domestication of global media formats, the creative autonomy of local audiences drawing on diverse cultures and as a logical extension of these arguments, maintaining that media globalisation is a myth. This last advance in a rather good recent book by Harvitz. Instead, I want to make the case for looking at something quite different, but still central to making sense of how media systems of the world are changing. During the last 25 years, there has been a tectonic shift in the way in which the media around the globe is organised. Four key changes have occurred, all of which make the market more central to the operation of the media. First, individual publicly owned broadcasting organisations have been privatised. In Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Denmark, France, Mexico and Spain, to mention only some of the places where this has happened. Second, there has been an enormous expansion in the number of commercially owned television channels as a consequence of market liberalisation. This has changed the character of television, especially in parts of the world like Europe and Asia, where there was once a strong public television tradition. Thus, in the early 1980s, public television channels outnumbered private ones by a ratio of 10 to 1 in Western Europe. Yet, by the end of the 20th century, major private channels outnumbered public ones, and this is before hundreds of small audience commercial channels on European cable and satellite TV are taken into account. Third, there has been a movement towards the deregulation of commercial television, that is the relaxation of positive programme requirements designed to further the public good. Their effect has been to make former public service commercial channels more oriented towards providing whatever is most profitable. Fourth, most public broadcasters are in decline. Their audiences have eroded, greatly so, in some countries like Canada and Australia. And they are increasingly beleaguered, being exposed to budget cuts or being compelled to seek funding from commercial sources or both, as in the case of Dordeshan in India. These cumulative pressures have tended to make public broadcasters more like the commercial rivals. These four interrelated changes, privatisation, market liberalisation, deregulation and the weakening of public broadcasters have resulted in an historic shift in the functioning of television. This shift can be summarised as a reorientation of television systems 
away from viewing audiences as citizens towards seeing them as consumers. It can also be characterised as a global shift towards the market-centred model of US television, an argument advanced by Helen and Mancini, Chardon and Cavori, among others. While this change and its underlying causes have all been well documented, the consequences remain under-researched. The main theme of the relevant literature is that the political world is being forced to adapt to the increased entertainment orientation of more market-driven media systems, leading to a cumulative Hollywoodization of politics. This has given rise to a subsidiary debate about whether politicians ought to entertain citizens in order to reconnect to the public, to which the answer given by Van Zunen and others is a qualified yes. But the cumulative changes in the organisation and orientation of television may have more far-reaching consequences than are addressed in this narrowly defined research. Television commercialisation may be reducing the prominence given to public affairs and fostering soft news reporting in a way that is promoting political ignorance and making it easier for governments and political elites to manipulate the public. There is, in fact, very little systematic information about how the diet on which democracy feeds in different parts of the world is changing. We simply don't know what is happening. This prompts the obvious question as to why our field, churning out as it does countless publications on cultural globalisation, should have left us so much in the dark. Here let me take a brief detour by offering three possible explanations. The first is that, prevailing, is that the prevailing neoliberal ascendancy makes media commercialisation appear relatively unproblematic and therefore not something worth prioritising in terms of research. Almost without us realising it, valorisation of the market has entered the bloodstream of media and cultural studies. Consider for a moment recent publications in Latin American media studies. Sally Hughes proclaims in a recent book that intensified market pressures played a significant part in transforming the Mexican media and in particular television from being a collusive institution sustaining an authoritarian regime to becoming during the 1990s and early 2000s a pluralistic hybrid system. Similarly, Carolina Matos, in a forthcoming book to be published by Lexington, lays even greater stress on the role of the market during the 1980s and 1990s in propelling the media from the official orbit of power in Brazil. The theme is the same. The market though not without problems, is an engine of media freedom. Comparable arguments are to be found in Asian media research, for example in recent studies of the development of the media in Hong Kong and Indonesia. Or take a completely different area of research, 
British press history. The orthodox interpretation and typified by the work of Hannah Barker, the daughter, incidentally, of her current LSE professor, is that the growth of unlicensed newspapers in the 18th century cast a low wattage light on the previously private aristocratic world of politics, rendering it more visible and accountable. How spectators outside the political system reacted to this new information began to matter because their reaction formed the basis of public opinion. Newspapers, Barker also argues, championed public opinion because this was the way to thrive in a competitive market. The market in her now standard account was thus an engine of popular power putting the people at the centre of politics. All consider critical American TV studies where market thinking often sets the limits of what it is possible to contemplate. For example, Todd Gitlin concludes his brilliant Inside Prime Time with the warning that the formal structure of a non-commercial television system along European lines offers no real solution. James Hamilton ends his groundbreaking work All the Television News That's Fit to Sell a good title, with the tame recommendation that non-profit organisations should subsidise the production and distribution of public information. Similarly, Geneva Overholzer recently issued a report on the crisis of American journalism outlining a series of ineffectual proposals from the voluntary ring-fencing of editorial budgets to the involvement of wealthy foundations in fostering good journalism. Foundations are America's equivalent of aristocratic patrons and the call on the Ford and Annenberg bequests as saviours is like turning to the Medici family for help, essentially an early modern solution. Common to all these critical approaches is acceptance of the market informed by an aversion to involving the state in the structural design of the media. If the influence of neoliberalism is one reason for failing to investigate adequately the global, global consequences of TV commercialization, another is blind faith in the redemptive power of new communications technology. The demotion of news and current affairs on some general television channels is being offset, it's argued, by the rise of specialised news channels, blogs and public affairs websites. This is something I will address more directly in a moment. But in passing, perhaps some evidence should be introduced into this discussion which tends to be distorted by personal subjective experience. Pew found that only 6% of people use blogs as political sources of information during the last US presidential campaign. Lusodi and Ward discovered that only 3% of British adults during the last general election used the internet as their main source of information. And Jeremy Tunstall recalls 
that the audience for the leading specialised news channel CNN in European countries like the Netherlands and Britain is so small as to be almost unmeasurable. This said, new communications technology is changing things and this introduces a deterrent element of uncertainty about the consequences of changes in old media. The third explanation has to do with arguments <coughs> that have become prominent in cultural studies. These can be briefly summarised in a few sentences. Once it is recognised that politics is personal, then it becomes obvious, it is argued, that much entertainment is also political because it provides a public forum for examining and debating prevailing social relationships. Media entertainment also offers a way of exploring, expressing and debating social values and social identity, both central to contemporary politics. And of course, media entertainment also projects pictures of the world, alternative ways of interpreting and explaining the dynamics of society, something that two generations of political scientists have largely neglected, even though entertainment is what most people consume most of the time in their media encounters. These are typical cultural studies arguments, iconoclastic in their rhetoric and reassuring in their conclusions. They both attack the received wisdom and offer a way of validating the fountain of entertainment generated by increasing media commercialization. At this point, I have a confession to make. I found myself developing and championing these last arguments in a public lecture I gave last year in America and repeated this year in Japan and indeed very nearly repeated here since I haven't given this lecture in Britain. I thought to myself, Sonia Livingston, she would never repeat a lecture. Um, she would rise to the occasion. So this is what I've sought to do. <laughs> the lecture that I didn't give kind of worked because it was supported by very entertaining excerpts from Sex and the City and the film Chocolat. But in this lecture, which may not work, I'm about to contest the thrust of these arguments and for enter... Oh. I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> and for entertainment, I will offer tables of statistics, though with some difficulty I've rationed these to four. So far, I have advanced rather circuitously the claim that an historic change is taking place in media systems around the globe that warrants more serious investigation. This thought prompted a group of us, myself, Shanto Iyengar, Anka Brink-Lund, and Inka Salavara-Morin, and ably assisted by my temporary research assistant, Sharon Cohn, to explore in a project partly co-funded by the ESRC the connections between the architecture of media systems, what is reported, and what is known in four countries. If Sonia Livingston is right in saying that the internet has not fundamentally transformed society, and she is, 
the internet may yet reconfigure media studies by making it enormously easier to do comparative research. I cannot compete with Peter Lunt, who wrote, I think, two academic articles with a beautiful Scandinavian academic without ever having met her. But it only proved necessary for our group to meet once in order to complete our comparative survey, the results of which are reported here for the first time in a study which I found a steep learning curve. We chose four economically advanced liberal democracies that represent three distinct media systems. An unreconstructed public service model exemplified by Finland and Denmark. A dual system that combines increasingly deregulated commercial television media with strong broadcasters, Britain, and the exemplar market model of the United States. Let me say a bit, the seats here, if you're brave enough to come and walk down here. The American model is based on market forces with minimum interference by the state. America's media are overwhelmingly in private hands. Its public service television, PBS, is under-resourced and accounts for less than 2% of audience share. Regulation of commercial broadcasting by the Federal Communications Commission has become increasingly light touch, meaning that American media are essentially entrepreneurial actors who strive to satisfy consumer demand. But this picture of a commercialised media system is complicated by the existence of a social responsibility tradition among American journalists, emphasising the need to inform the public, a tradition which is strongly embedded in an oligopolistic press and, to a lesser extent, network news. However, this tradition is weakening in the face of increasing competition from new channels and websites in the context of a society which has a long history of disinterest in foreign affairs and in which a large section of the population is disconnected from public life. This has led to an extensive closure of foreign news bureaus and the growth of soft journalism exemplified by the rise of local TV news programmes centred on crime, calamities and accidents. In stark contrast to the US system, the traditional public service model represented by Finland and Denmark deliberately seeks to influence audience behaviour through a framework of public law and subsidy. The core assumption is that citizens need to be adequately exposed to public affairs programming if they are to cast informed votes, hold government to account and be properly empowered. This results in generous subsidies for public broadcasters which helps in turn to ensure that they secure large audiences. In Finland, the two main public television channels had a 44% share of viewing time in 2005. In Denmark, their equivalents had an even higher share 
of 64% in 2006. The public interest argument also results in positive programme obligations being imposed on terrestrial commercial television channels enforced by a public regulator. This public service model thus embraces both the public and commercial broadcast sectors. Britain represents a media system somewhere in between the pure market US and pure public service models exemplified by Denmark and Finland. On the one hand, Britain's flagship broadcasting organisation, the BBC, is the largest, best-resourced public broadcaster in the world and retains a large audience. The BBC's two principal channels, along with publicly-owned Channel 4, accounted for 43% of viewing time in Britain in 2006. On the other hand, the principal satellite broadcaster, B-Sky-B, was allowed to develop in a largely unregulated form and the principal terrestrial commercial channel, ITV, was sold in a public auction during the 1990s and its public obligations, although still significant, were lightened. This move towards the deregulation of commercial television had major consequences, some of which are only now becoming apparent. Between 1988 and 1998, the foreign coverage of ITV's current affairs programmes halved. By 2005, its factual international programme would drop below that of any other terrestrial channel. The more uncompromising commercial orientation of ITV had a knock-on effect on other broadcasters, most noticeably on the BBC, where there was a softening of news values. By contrast with broadcasting, there is a greater affinity between the newspapers of the four countries, since these are unregulated and overwhelmingly commercial enterprises. Competition is constrained in the US, Denmark and Finland by the development of extensive monopolies in a still dominant press. However, the rise of the metro phenomenon of free distribution daily papers has fueled competition in both Scandinavian countries. Denmark has three directly competing national dailies and a tabloid tradition in part of its press. These features are accentuated in Britain where there are ten directly competing daily titles in a sharply contrasting, contracting market in decline since 1957. Overall, the differences between the media systems of the four countries are now less pronounced than they once were. But there remains nonetheless a significant contrast between the American television model, which is geared primarily towards satisfying consumer demand, and the public service television systems in Finland, Denmark, and to a lesser degree Britain, which give greater priority to satisfying informed citizenship. In order to investigate whether this made a difference, we undertook a content analysis of the main news programmes of the two principal television channels. 
and of the news reported in a sample of papers in the four countries. In the UK, for example, we took the circulation leaders of the upscale, mid-scale and downscale sectors of the national press and one regular daily. Each news source was monitored for a period of four non-sequential weeks in February to April 2007, this year. Central to our analysis was a distinction between hard and soft news. As a first step, we defined all news reports about topics such as politics, public administration, the economy and science as potentially hard, while news concerned with celebrities, entertainment and sport was classified as potentially soft. The second phase of classification was based on mode of treatment. In particular, all news reports on either soft or hard topic areas that were framed in terms of the public good or raised issues about public policy and administration were defined as hard. Thus, news reports of the early initial release from prison of the celebrity heiress Paris Hilton framed in terms of whether there is, an, there is equality of justice in America were redesignated as hard news since they called into question the criminal justice system. But the same story framed in terms of human interest, how the heiress reacted to freedom or how she was dressed and behaved, stayed soft. This two-step classification had the desired effect of promoting consistent coding across countries. The content analysis was followed by an online survey of a thousand people in each country. Half the questions on both hard and soft news topics were common to all four countries and the other half were asked of each specific country. The questions were varied in terms of their perceived difficulty. For example, questions asking American respondents to identify Taliban and the incoming president of France, Sarkozy, were deemed easy, while questions asking respondents to identify the location of the Tamil Tigers separatist movement and the former ruler of Serbia were considered difficult. In the area of soft news, easy questions provided highly visible targets, such as the popular video sharing website YouTube. A more difficult question was the identity of the Russian tennis star Maria Sharapova. We also supplemented the domestic questions with a set of country-specific questions related to the particular geopolitical zone in which each country is situated. Americans, for example, were asked to identify Hugo Chavez, president of Venezuela, while British and Finnish respondents were asked to identify Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, and Danes, the incoming British Premier, Gordon Brown. At this point, um, table one will be shown if the apparatus works. It does. Um, um, our content analysis shows that the market-driven television system of the United States is overwhelmingly preoccupied with domestic news. American network news allocates only 20% of their programming time to reporting foreign news, 47% of which, incidentally, is about Iraq. Whole areas of the world 
received very little coverage and, and indeed for much of the time are virtually blacked out in American network news. By contrast, the European public service television channels represented in our study devote significantly more attention to overseas news. As a proportion of news programming time, foreign coverage on the main news channels in Britain and Finland is approaching double that in the United States. In passing, it should also be noted that the worldview of British and American television either gave us looking horrified and scandalised as a proportion. Let's come back to that. Um, in passing, it should also be noted that the whole worldview of British and American television is significantly different from that of the two Scandinavian countries. Both Finnish and Danish television distribute their coverage of foreign news very evenly between three categories. Their content, Europe, their wider geopolitical zone, in the case of Denmark, for example, that is the US, Iraq and Afghanistan, and the rest of the world. By contrast, both American and British television channels devote a much smaller proportion of their foreign news time, between 5 and 8%, to other countries in their continent. And in Britain's case, much less attention to the rest of the world. Their main focus, accounting for between over half and over two-thirds of their foreign news coverage, is overwhelmingly on geopolitical attachments in which Iraq and Afghanistan loom large. Also in passing, since this takes us away from the main theme of the lecture, but it's too startling to overlook, the proportion of Finnish and Danish television news devoted to Europe is over four times that of British television. Both Finland and Denmark feel themselves to be part of Europe Britain has more difficulty coming to terms with this idea. Back to the main theme. Ratings conscious American networks also allocate significant time to soft news, both foreign and domestic, 37%, as does British television news, 40%. This compares with much lower proportions in Finland and Denmark. Indeed, the Anglo-American daily quota of soft news is more than double that in Finland. The difference is partly due to the fact that both American and British television news allocates a significant amount of time, 14% and 11% respectively, to entertainment, celebrities and gossip, unlike Danish and Finnish news, less than 5%. Conversely, the proportion of television hard news in the UK and US, between 60 and 63% is very much lower than in Finland, 83% and Denmark, 71%. In the case of newspapers, the preoccupation with soft news is no longer an American prerogative. In fact, our sample of American newspapers was much more oriented towards hard news than their counterparts in the European countries. As expected, the British press, with its significant tabloid tradition, 
is preoccupied with domestic stories, 83%, soft news, 60%, and devotes more space, 25%, than even the Danish press. To summarise, Finnish and Danish public service television is more hard news oriented and outward looking than American commercial television, with British television occupying an orbit closer to the American than the Scandinavian models. But this pattern is modified when it comes to newspapers, a less important source of information about public affairs than television. The British and Danish press prioritise soft and domestic news more than the American and Finnish press. Switching now to table two, the survey results revealed Americans to be especially uninformed about international public affairs. For example, 67% of American respondents were unable to identify Nicolas Sarkozy as a president of France even though they were tipped the correct answer in one of the five responses. And all the questions had an option of five answers, and you clicked on the one you thought was right. Americans did much worse than Europeans in response to seven out of the eight common international hard news questions, the sole exception being a question about the identity of the Iraqi prime minister. The contrast between Americans and others was especially pronounced in relation to some topics. For example, 62% of Americans were unable to identify the Kyoto Accords as a treaty on climate change, compared with a mere 20% in Finland and Denmark. Finn sitting and noticed in the front row looks unsurprised. And 39% in Britain. Overall, the Scandinavians emerged as the best informed with 62 to 67% average correct responses, the British relatively close behind with 59%, and the Americans lagging in the rear with 40%. Switching to table three, Americans also underperformed in relation to domestic-related hard news stories. Overall, Denmark and Finland scored highest in the area of domestic news knowledge with an average of 78% correct answers, followed again by Britain with 67% and the United States with 57%. Turning to awareness of international soft news, Americans were again the least informed, thus only 50% of Americans knew that Beijing is the site of the next Olympic Games, compared with 68 to 77% in the three other countries. Overall, the British were best able to give correct answers in this area, 79%, followed by the Scandinavians and the Americans. The one area where Americans held their own was domestic soft news. Thus, over 90% of Americans were able to identify the celebrities Mel Gibson, Donald Trump and Britney Spears. However, the average American score for domestic soft news was similar to that in Britain and Denmark, and significantly below that of Finland. In general, these data reveal a connection between news coverage and levels of public knowledge. American television reports much less international news than Finnish, Danish and British television. 
and Americans know very much less about foreign affairs than respondents in these three countries. American television network news also report much less hard news than Finnish and Danish television. And again, the gap between what Americans and Finns and Danes know in this area is very large. British television allocates most time to international soft news and British respondents' knowledge in this area is unsurpassed. Britons hold their own only in relation to domestic soft news, an area where American television is strong. There are perhaps two surprises in these results. The first is that Finns and Danes have extensive knowledge of soft as well as hard news, something that is perhaps assisted by their popular press with a large quota of soft news. The second is that American respondents seem to know less in general about the world around them than Europeans, for which there is, as we shall see, an explanation. To further pursue the connection between news coverage and public knowledge, we examined whether greater media, media visibility of the topics and people we asked about in a sample of newspapers in the four countries, one month and six months prior to our survey, was associated with higher levels of knowledge, and conversely, whether reduced media prominence of topics persons was associated with lower levels of knowledge. There were two limitations to this exercise. First, the availability of longitudinal data on news coverage limited the analysis to print media and did not include the more important medium of television. Second, there is an element of ambiguity about our understanding of visibility. A person who receives only limited press coverage in the six months leading up to the survey may yet have obtained extensive coverage before then, generating a cumulative knowledge that is carried forward to the survey. Yet despite these potentially distorting inferences, our analysis suggests that there is a clear statistical relationship between extended press prominence and what is retained. Visibility scores in the long period, in the six months preceding the survey, were good predictors of the percentage of correct answers given by our participants in the US, UK and Denmark, though not in Finland. This analysis thus corroborates our assertion that what the media report or fail to report affects what is known. The sustained lack of attention given to international news on American television and the lack of knowledge of international public affairs in America is not a coincidence. <coughs> to this point, we have examined the relationship between the supply of news and the level of public knowledge. But knowledge is obviously also contingent on individuals' motivation to know, their interest in current events and attentiveness to the news media. We ask survey respondents to indicate the frequency with which they use various media sources. The results showed substantial cross-national differences. Americans consume relatively little news from conventional media by comparison with populations elsewhere. Just 39% of American respondents report that they look at national TV news more than four days a week. This contrasts with 78% in Denmark, 76 in Finland, and 73% in Britain. 
can't resist doing this, even though I'm running short of time. Um, but um, I saw a slightly hooded look on one person's face, um, and this is so irresponsible. Um, but, but let me tell you about a successful paper I gave. Um, it was about the campaign against taxes and knowledge in Britain in the 1850s in the, IH, in the Institute of Historical Research. And maybe my interest in the subject was greater than that of the audience because various people had a slightly hooded book like one person had here. And more to the point, um, the chairman behaved in a very strange way. Um, his head kept on lowering on his chest and, and then rising reluctantly like he was sort of fighting sleep. Um, and then his head stayed on his chest and he started to snore. Um, he called it Adam Lee. Um, and the snoring was kind of, um, it was heavy breathing to start with and people were marched. And then it got quite loud. Um, and there was still you no know, titters all around the room. Um, and I realised that paper wasn't going very well. So I brought it to a quick, sharp stop. Um, and the chairman was still asleep. So I went with that. Um, and he sort of shook himself and said, um, I'd like to thank James Caron for very stimulating. <laughs> At which point there was roaring laughter. And I learned from that moment never to read a prepared text, always to speak eloquently from notes. And I'm breaking this lesson. Uh, but there's so much data that you have basically to read it out. Um, let me continue. <laughs> To this point, we have examined the relationship between the supply of news and the level of public knowledge. But knowledge is obviously also contingent on individuals' motivation to know, their interest in current events and attentiveness to news media. We ask survey respondents to indicate the frequency with which... Sorry, I've this already. Um, just 39% of American respondents report that they look to national TV news more than four days a week. This contrasts in much higher proportions elsewhere. Um, one reason for this contrast is that significant numbers in the United States, a vast country with different time zones and a politically devolved form of government, are oriented towards local rather than national news. A higher proportion in the United States, 51%, say that they watch regularly local television news than in Denmark and Finland, though not in Britain. But the low consumption of national television news in the US is also symptomatic of the traditionally light American news diet. Only 37% of American respondents say that they read newspapers more than four days a week in the US, compared to 71% in Finland, 58% in Denmark, and 44% in the UK. Just 39% of Americans listen to radio news more than four days a week compared to significantly higher levels elsewhere. In short, one reason why Americans know less about the world around them than Finns, Danes and the British is that Americans consume relatively little news in comparison with populations elsewhere. It's possible that Americans make up for their deficit and old media consumption with greater use of the internet. Indeed they do. have greater use of the internet. But the available evidence casts doubt on that particular spin. Research by the Pew Center, for instance, demonstrates that total consumption of news across all outlets in the US 
actually declined between 1994 and 2004. That's a period of enormous expansion of media. Moreover, the greatest decline in news consumption occurred among young adults, the most internet-oriented cohort of the electorate. At this point, I'll turn to table four. Another factor contributing to American underperformance is that the knowledge gap between social groups is greater in America than in the three other European countries we studied. Disadvantaged groups in the United States perform especially poorly in our knowledge tests, lowering the national average American score. The reverse is the case, with our counterparts doing better in relation to the mean and raising the average national scores of Finland, Denmark and Britain. The contrast is especially notable in relation to education. We divided the populations of the four countries into three comparable educational groups, those with limited education, moderate by medium education, and the highly educated, graduates and postgraduates. Those with limited education in the United States score very much lower in relation to hard news questions than those with higher education. The difference between them is a massive 40 percentage points. By contrast, the difference between the same two groups in the United Kingdom is 14 percentage points. 13 percentage points in Finland and in effect none in Denmark. A similar pattern recurs in relation to income. The income data was not collected in Denmark. In the United States, the average of only 29% of the low-income group give correct answers to hard news questions compared with 60, 61% of the high-income group, a difference of 32 percentage points. The comparable difference is less than half this in Britain as a proportion and is actually inverted in Finland. There is also a significant hard news knowledge gap between the ethnic majority and ethnic minorities in the US of 15 percentage points, but in Britain there is none. Data was not analysed for ethnic minorities in Denmark, Finland, and Denmark and Finland, but there are a very small proportion of the population. These findings fit a general pattern of more variance in the distribution of knowledge in the United States compared with elsewhere. The difference, for example, in the hard news scores of men and women and of young and old is more pronounced in the United States than in the free European countries. Thus, there appears to be a higher minimum threshold of information in the free European countries compared with the United States. National television in Europe is more successful in reaching disadvantaged groups, defined in terms of income, education and ethnicity, partly as a consequence of its public service tradition. Public broadcasters financed by a licence fee or public grant are under enormous pressure to connect to all sections of society in order to justify their continued public funding. Any evidence that they are losing their appeal to a section of the audience usually results in urgent internal inquests and demands for remedial action. By contrast, commercial media tend to be exposed to pressure to prioritise high-spending audiences in order to maximise advertising revenue. This can result in low-income groups receiving less attention and even exceptional cases being deliberately shunned. The central objectives of public service and commercial media are also different. The primary goal of commercial media is to make money, while that of public service organisations is to serve society in ways that are defined in law and regulation. One of their principal public obligations is to inform the public 
which influences when news programs are transmitted. This seems to me to be key. The free American television networks transmit their main news programs in the early and late evening. They reserve the hours between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. for entertainment in order to maximize ratings and revenue. By contrast, the top three television channels in Finland transmit their main news programs at different times throughout the evening at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8.30 and 10 p.m. And one of these principal channels, a daily current affairs program at 9.30 p.m. In Denmark, the two leading television channels transmit their main news programs at 6, 7 and 10, spliced by a current affairs program on one of these channels at 9.30. In both countries, the top television channels, including Finland's commercial MTV free channel, offer a steady drip feed of public information in prime time, in contrast to the entertainment intensive schedules of America's market-driven television system. British television balances uncertainly between these two models. In 1999, ITV adopted the American scheduling strategy of an early and late evening news slot, something made possible by its increased deregulation. This exerted ratings pressure on the BBC One, which then moved its 9 o'clock news programme to 10 o'clock. Public pressure then forced ITV in 2004 to bring forward its main news programmes to the earlier time of 10.30pm. The main news inputs from Britain's top three channels are now 6, 6.30, 7, 10 and 10.30. As a consequence of their social inclusion and information commitments, public service television in Finland and Denmark and even in Britain have been relatively successful and getting disadvantaged groups to join in the national ritual of watching the evening news. Much higher proportions of the less educated and those with low incomes watch television news on a regular basis there than in the United States. This is not just a function of the higher levels of national TV news consumption in these three countries. The difference between the proportion of those with limited education and the national average in watching regular news is smaller in the UK and Finland than in the US. And the same is true for low-income groups in the United Kingdom and Denmark. Similarly, ethnic minorities' exposure to national TV news is below the national average in the US, but the same as the national average in the UK. The greater degree of economic inequality in the US compared with Europe is probably the main cause of the large knowledge disparity in the US. But one reason why the low-income and low-education groups in the US are less informed about hard news is they are much less inclined to watch national television news than their counterparts in the free European countries. But although the media are organised, so sorry, but although how the media are organised and how and when they report the news are significant influences on the level of public knowledge, they are less important than deep-seated societal factors. This is highlighted by the regression model that we constructed for predicting knowledge of hard news topics in the four countries. The model accounts for a good deal of variance approaching to half in the pooled data set. It showed that gender and education are strong predictors of knowledge, more so than media exposure. But what is very much more important 
and whose mediation also diminishes these other factors as, as autonomous influences is interest in politics. Respondents who say they want to be up to date with what happens in government are interested in politics and talk about politics are greatly more knowledgeable than those who express lack of interest. Indeed, being interested is the single most important correlate of hard news knowledge in all four countries. In conclusion, how the media are organised is less important than wider processes in society of a kind that generates spontaneous interest in public affairs, in determining knowledge that generates spontaneous interest, sorry, of a kind that generates spontaneous interest in public affairs, in determining knowledge about public life. But this does not mean that the architecture of media systems is unimportant. Our evidence suggests that the public service model of broadcasting gives greater attention to public affairs and international news and thus fosters greater knowledge in these areas than the market model. The public service model makes television news more accessible on leading channels and fosters higher levels of TV news consumption as a consequence. It also contributes to a diminution of the knowledge gap between the advantage and disadvantage and in this way contributes to a more equitable pattern of citizenship. But perhaps the key point to emerge from this study is the low level of attention that the market-driven television system of the United States gives to the world outside America and to a lesser extent to hard news. This contributes, our study suggests, to the high level of public ignorance that exists in America about the wider world and about public life in general. Yet, yet there has been a worldwide movement towards the entertainment-centred model of American television. If this trend continues, it seems set to foster an impoverished public life characterised by declining exposure to serious journalism and by reduced levels of public knowledge. to ask questions, um, now's your opportunity. Damien. Oh. Dr. Tambini. Thank you. Um, thanks. thanks very much. Um, I'm very sympathetic with the, with the thrust of the argument, um, which I guess makes it all the more urgent that I, I deal with my doubts. Um, and there are, there are just a few of them. I'm, in your presentation of your cross-national comparison on basically the quiz scores, or the, the, you know, the, the can, you, can you explain to me how you're completely sure that the effect is not caused by intervening variables of another kind, for example, differences in education systems? I know you, you, you've presented some reference to regressions at the end, but I wasn't 
quite sure that it didn't stand in the the presentation that these differences could have causes other than exposure to media. So that's, I guess, the first point. I'm a little worried that that we might be comparing, we we might not be comparing like with like in terms of the content of some of the quiz scores as well. Some of the questions you're asking about knowledge, particularly a large federation, which is a different kind of political system, uh, with a, think of the United States, with a a galaxy of celebrities um, in comparison with a very small linguistically bound uh, nation state, which may have a more coherent and more easily accessible public culture, and and it may be that the the quiz scores are going to be higher as a result. Um, And so I'm I'm just wondering if, if, if there's any... Where you, where you can address that, those kinds of differences. Um, and I, I agree with you that the new media and the internet is not the answer in the sense of, of changing media diets. But is it the case that the transformations in public service systems due to new media and the internet um, mean that in, to a certain extent particularly in in larger countries um, where consumers do have increasing choice and they make those choices, that because of new media, increasing channel choice and the internet, um, some of these changes are inevitable, particularly given your point that it is ultimately choice and desire rather than the structure of the media system which is going to determine outcomes. There are three good questions. Let me try and answer each of them in turn. Um, I read the last part of the paper fast, so let me repeat what I failed to communicate. Um, We we found that media exposure was not the closest correlate, the greatest predictor of knowledge. Um, On the contrary, interest in hard news topics was the greatest predictor. Um, and that arises from differences in society. So our conclusion was precisely the nature of your reservation. However, we did find that um, the architecture and media systems mattered. It was one contributing influence. Um, so our conclusion was media exposure was not the most important determinant of knowledge, but it was an influence nonetheless. Um, the point you're making about differences in society is obviously right. Um, your second point about quiz scores, quiz scores um, we took enormous trouble to try and balance um, the, the quiz scores in terms of difficulty. And the criteria used was the visibility in the previous six months. So we tried to balance. Um, questions which have been extensively covered in six months uh, with those that hadn't been extensively covered. We tried to find neutral questions which we asked across countries and we tried to balance the country-specific questions. And it's actually very difficult. And it hadn't dawned on me until I was involved in this process. But much of international culture that is shared is actually American. So it's unbelievably difficult to ask soft questions which aren't biased to America but we did our very best to do that Um, and um, whether we succeeded or not will be 
evidenced by the replication of the study. Um, there's a person in uh, Norway who's just about to repeat the study. Um, other countries in Europe and America. So whether your scepticism is justified or not, we will see. Um, but we were very, very sensitive to the issue you, you raised, and we did try and fully address it. On, on the last point, I think probably, whereas I grieve the first two points you made, the last one I don't, um, and I think the key word you used was consumer, um, that there's expanding consumer choice, and therefore that has certain policy implications. My contention is that we need to think in terms of citizens. And, and, and one of the problems is that policy has been driven by the notion that the public are consumers. They're not only consumers of the media, they're also citizens. And citizens need to be adequately informed. And public and private media systems need to respond to the needs of citizenship. So, Unlike um, Fowler, the former chairman of the FCC, he, he made that famous statement, you remember, um, the, public's the public's interest defines the public interest, and that is a consumer definition. On the contrary, the media needs to enable citizens to hold their governments to account, and that means being adequately informed. And that has certain policy consequences, um, it means that we need to be alert to the damage we are doing to democracy if we pursue a consumer-driven um, process of deregulation. I may be misrepresenting you, um, and if I say I, 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 I unreservedly apologise, but I suspect there is a difference between us in that last. Dr. Rantan, uh, Professor Rantan. I think you should have the answer. Yeah. I reply. <laughs> Thank you, James. Um, it was very nice that you talked about Nokia land, which I know well. Um, a couple of questions um, related to um, Damien's comments. I was just wondering whether, whether they, the relationship is only a one-way relationship. You said that because there's a supply of news, there's increasing knowledge. But could it be the other way around? How, how do you know that it is the supply of news that increases the knowledge? And, and then also the kind of the nature of knowledge you were talking about, how important it is that we know who is the president of France to be, to be a citizen. And also, isn't it much easier to be a citizen, a relatively homogeneous small country where there are very few migrants and everybody, you know, shares this kind of national identity that is very much promoted by the national uh, broadcasting company. So in a way, for example, in the UK or in the United States, because there are people from so many different countries, what they think is the most important public knowledge is not necessary the questions you were asking. On, on, on the first point, how do you know, how do we know that, that um, what is reported leads to greater knowledge? We did a visibility test. We, 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 we related the frequency with which um, the items we asked about appeared in LexisNexis um, 
in the six months before the survey in a sample of papers in, in all four countries. And there was a connection between prominence and knowledge in three of those countries. Um, we didn't do it for television because there isn't a LexisNexis for television, but it would be even better had we done so. Um, on, the, on the point about how do we know, why, why does it matter whether Sarkozy um, is known or not, um, I think I have two responses to that. One is I, I kind of agree with you. Um, and there was a debate within the group uh, in which the case was put. Uh, no, we're, we're, we're asking questions about public knowledge um, in a sort of classic democratic way, but there's also false knowledge. Um, and so the Finnish investigator and myself asked two questions about um, crime um, because there was enormous coverage of crime in the media. And we asked questions about what they didn't know. And we found that in Finland and Britain, um, it was between 75% and 80% overstated the number of murders taking place. And they greatly exaggerated um, the um, incidence of crime. So you put your finger on the question, why does it matter? And I think my answer is circuitous, but let me give you a statistic which <coughs> makes me think it matters. Um, if I can just quote the exact figure. Try and find this somewhere. Um, and I think this is telling, and I think it's a response to your question. In March 2006, according to a Pew poll, 49% of Americans thought that either Iraq was directly involved in carrying out the September 11th attacks or that Iraq gave substantial support to Al-Qaeda. Still more startling, 50% of Americans said that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction when the US invaded in a Harris survey conducted in July 2006. And my contention is that if you have absolutely minimal public knowledge, if you don't know the basics, then you are very liable to be manipulated. And ironically, it does matter that you have a basic public knowledge, and that includes knowing Sarkozy, because that is an index of a, a, a minimal knowledge that citizens should have. And if you don't have that minimum knowledge, because you're served by an entertainment-centered media system, um, you aren't able to hold your governments and elites to account. And um, what is deeply frightening is that you have a superpower which is a world power with a population which is as underinformed as it is, as badly served by its media system as it is, so that um, it matters. <laughs> The other, the other implication in, in, in Terry's question, which I think is not only does it matter who, who is Sarkozy, but also um, are there other things that people might know as citizens that aren't um, included in your survey? And I, I just wanted to go back to your um, rejection of the cultural studies argument that the personal and political, as you may have predicted I would, because if interest in politics is key, I think many have now argued interest in politics is better sustained by thinking about other aspects of citizenship, the green movement or um, various other kinds of issues outside the traditional political 
um, uh, narrow political scene as, as often defined by hard news. And I just wonder how, you know, how, how we're going to broaden the concept of citizenship without going in a route that you um, don't favour if we're going to sustain and indeed increase people's interest in, in politics. No, no I, I completely agree with you. I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, I, 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 and when I develop my last lecture, there's a dialogue between those arguments and the arguments I'm advancing. Um, the reason why we had such a complicated analysis of hard and soft news was precisely because it seemed to us that things like crime stories are actually enormously political. Um, and, and, and so are human interest stories. I mean, human interest stories are a way of connecting to what people feel strongly about, but they also can be a way of talking about the common good and our common processes. So, so, so um, I'm not suggesting a kind of guardian agenda. Um, on the contrary, I think the challenge for um, journalists is actually to develop a number of new voices that connects the kind of cultural studies argument to a public agenda. I'm from near the United States, Canada. And uh, as you mentioned, our CBC is having a tough time. And what I'd like to, excuse me, what I'd like to know is, is this just commercially driven or um, should I be a conspiracy theorist? When our baby, uh, our prime minister, who was kind of a baby Thatcher and Reagan, Brian Mulroney, wanted to bring in free trade with the United States, he his secret papers said that he wanted the public to be um, victims of a, in a state of benign neglect. And so he didn't want us to have this information. So it, do you think it's all commercially oriented or is there something else at work here? I, I think there's a basic dynamic tension between media systems which are driven by the market and which are geared towards maximizing profit. Um, leads to the systematic neglect of public affairs. And the reason for that is public affairs is a minority interest. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, I mean, th th there's lots of research that indicates that, you know, in terms of what people read, um, that, that um, the most read stories in papers are human interest stories. So, so a market-driven media system is going to respond to consumer preferences which leads to a democratic deficit. A, 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 a media system that has public objectives, which includes that of informing citizens, has a different um, agenda. Uh, and and um, it's important, it seems to me, to be thinking about what democracy needs, not simply what consumers need, which comes back to the the argument or not argument that, that Damien was developing. Um, so what we are trying to do in this research essentially is to show the consequences of having a public service system as against the market system. I'm just saying in whose interest is this uh, deterioration? Um, well, the, the, the deterioration has come partly as a consequence of the neoliberal ascendancy has come partly as a consequence of industrial lobbies. Um, it's come partly as a consequence of new technology, which has generated um, a wider number of media outlets, 
which then legitimates a change of public policy. Um, so I'm not saying there's a conspiracy. I'm saying there's a number of different factors in play that have led to this change. Um, yes. Um, a fascinating argument, but I'm, I'm amused by your conclusions. It seems to me that what you have, what you have shown is, which we knew, but it's good to have it reinforced, is that um, media in this case political knowledge and so on is determined by wider social factors um, and that the media impact while there is some is relatively minor. Indeed you could argue from your figures that what impact there is is its of correlation of an impact. That's to say that in those cultures which have a high interest in politics and watch news and so on and so forth um, you have media systems which provide more of it. But if you spread from that, what I can't see is how you go from, even if you accept that the media architecture is important, how you move from the current situation to a new situation, since you can't, under any conceivable uh, kind of regime, set up a system which forces people to watch news, um, which, is, which is the ultimate result of your argument. And the, the changes in the media system are much more likely to be judged driven by changes in the general culture, which, I mean, I doubt if people ever, under the classic public service uh, system, actually got the public knowledge they were supposed to get from the public service system, but they certainly, under your figures, don't, that's not a significant driver, so why should we worry about it? And even if we do worry about it, what could we possibly do about it? Um, the, the, the first um, answer to your question is, of course, wider processes in society are the main determinant of knowledge, and that's central to our argument. We recognize that. The question then becomes, given that the media is one subsidiary influence, what should one do about it? Um, and what we sought to draw out is the consequences of having different forms of media organization which leads to the scheduling of news, amongst other things, at different times. Um, is there anything can be done about it? Yes. Um, in Britain, um, in 1999, ITV adopted the American strategy of having the news at 11 o'clock. Um, so you, there was a whole area of the news which was set free for continuous entertainment. There was a protest. Public pressure was brought to bear. In 2004, um, they brought the news to 10.30. And there's still a continuing process. So when I gave evidence to the House of Lords Select Committee on Communications two weeks ago, I suggested that ITV should be pressurized still more. And they said it has been. And they're going to change the time to 10 o'clock. So that is a practical example of not resigning yourself to the inexorable movement towards the American media system with entertainment at its end goal. And that, I'm sure, is something you also believe. How do you see the significance of uh, media literacy in understanding the media message? <coughs> the significance of media literacy. 
media literacy. Right. Yeah. Um, media literacy is obviously important in terms of cultivating a critical response to um, journalism. There's also a need for media literacy amongst journalists. Um, Greg Philo's research shows interestingly the way in which so much news is decontextualized that there are bald factual reports that don't mean very much because they presuppose greater knowledge on the part of the audience than they had. So media literacy is a two-way process of educating journalists as well as critically educating audiences. I'll, I'll be very brief. It just struck me that um, by looking at the text rather than the audience, whether by implication um, you then end up focusing on media system versus political systems because, of course, the big difference is also how these different informations, uh, the, these different forms of information then feed back into the political process. And there's, of course, a very distinct difference in political systems between the US, the UK in the middle, Finland and Denmark, which more or less um, correlates to, to the different media systems you outlined. So in other words, are they also an expression of people's inability to feedback in the existing um, structures of indirect democracy and therefore resorting to entertainment as an alternative outlet, for example, for political discourse? I mean, you could easily do this kind of research in a completely different way, and you could look at society and political systems first, and you could see the media as the product of those political systems and, uh, and society. Um, and that's an entirely legitimate thing to do. There is a sense in which media systems are proxies for political systems and political cultures. But, but our contention is that media systems and their design also matter and they aren't simply um, that they can be reformed and changed and modified and debated. Um, so I understand the argument you're making and it's an argument that I suspect Sonia Livingston and Nick Colbury will be particularly sympathetic towards. Um, but I still think it's worth looking at media systems. I'm dying to jump in, but there's lots of others. Um, so, um, yes, please, yes. And then uh, pass it along. Thank you for your talk. Um, very much enjoyed it. Uh, I'm still in my mind... Uh, troubled and confused about what I think was the central thrust in your argument. Now, are we talking about greater exposure? I mean, if an audience has greater exposure to, let's say, hard news, producing more knowledge, or are we talking about that's producing more information? Because in my mind, I'm not sure what you know what we mean by knowledge, because you could be exposed to several sources of hard news and diversity of hard news and have more information, but not necessarily be knowledgeable. So is there a difference between being knowledgeable, because that then raises the question, what is knowledge, or are we talking about more exposure to information? Uh, because I felt that in your talk, information and knowledge was perhaps being conflated, and I was wondering if you could speak to that. Right. We, we, we decided to take a, a shorthand we decided to take topics in the news, events in the news, um, and individuals in the news, and, and just ask a very simple set of questions um, without getting involved 
in wider debates about the nature of knowledge and information and without even getting involved in the nature of the relationship between um, social process, media systems, political cultures. We just thought it was worth doing to do a simple piece of research um, in which we sought to show that there are consequences in terms of how the media are organised and in terms of what they privilege in the public domain. And that seemed to us just to be a useful thing to do. Uh, and to judge from the sceptical response of some people in the audience, it was a worthwhile thing to do because it's clearly not self-evident. Um, it clearly is something that needs to be contested. Um, the one time we met... We actually had a debate about knowledge and information. Um, and one of us said, for Christ's sake, let's make it simple. And we all said, yes, let's make it simple. <laughs> That's what we did. But, sorry. Uh, Well, we, we just chose knowledge as in, in, in very simple terms, right, as an indicator of something more significant. What we thought about doing was having questions about interpretation, um, and then we thought that would complicate things. So we decided to make it simple. Um, uh, but, you know, as you know, in the field, there is an immense debate about the difference between knowledge and information. Entire courses are constructed around it. I think you probably teach such a course. <laughs> um, oh dear, I'm going to have to... Um, actually, I think, given the time, I'm going to encourage everybody to um, bring their questions to the reception in the senior dining room, which immediately follows this um, event, because I can't possibly choose in any way. It's now 8 o'clock. Um, so do please join us for a drink. Everyone is invited, but before we go, can we just say thank you very much? Uh, to